Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles. In December of 2005, I found myself in Boston, of all places, speaking at a spirituality and medicine conference sponsored by Harvard Medical School and George Washington University. The workshops I did were an hour and 45 minutes long, so what you're going to hear are some of the questions and answers from those workshops. The topics cover birth and death, uh, sex, karma, the problem with oneness, a variety of topics. I hope you find them interesting, and I hope you find my answers useful. So without further introduction, questions and answers from a two, December 2005 conference I attended in Boston, Spirituality in Medicine. So it's pretty easy not to kill human beings for most of us. But it's hard not to kill other kinds of life. And every form of life that I'm aware of simply wants to live. That's all. And, and I don't know why a cockroach would want to live. But, but if you try to kill them, they run away. So to them, their life is important as well. So not taking life is where we sort of start. And then, yes? Plant life? Well, this is the irony of being a human being, okay? Uh, and this is uh, one of the uh, interesting dilemmas we have in Buddhism because some Buddhists are vegetarian and some Buddhists aren't. And um, the ones who are vegetarian feel that they're better Buddhists because they're not eating meat. But I think to myself, well, they just can't hear the broccoli scream when you pull it from the ground. So the Buddha ate meat. The Buddha ate what was offered to him. He was a beggar. And if somebody had been eating chicken that night and offered him chicken, he took it. But when the Buddhists moved out of that relationship with the lay community, begging every day for their food, and started to put their temples far, far away from the cities so they wouldn't be disturbed or distracted by lay people coming to visit because they wanted to practice and get enlightened, I think what happened is they said, well, we just can't have cows and pigs now. What monk is going to go kill the cows and pigs? We can't assign somebody to do that. So I guess we're going to have to be vegetarians and grow our own food if we're not going to go begging. Yes? You can skip this if you're going to get to it later, but talking about the life and death, what are the feelings about um, advanced life support and or withdrawing life support? Yeah, that's really a good question. I wasn't going to get to that, but let me get to it right now, and then we'll go back to vegetables. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I was, I was giving a presentation at a Providence hospital in Burbank, California, to physicians. And, and, um, um, and a couple of them said, what about life support? Uh, you know, is it better to not plug them in? You know, and actually, from a Buddhist perspective, it probably would be better not to plug them in. Because if you have to unplug them, you're killing them. Now... Again, a lot of has to do with intention. So you could be killing them for their own good. Weird statement to make. But so that reduces the consequences. So for a Buddhist, if, if they're unconscious, if they can't practice, you know, and if their body is limited in the time it's going to exist anyway, it may be better, with the permission of the family, of course, to let them die. Uh, it's, you know, when people, you know, um, 
get cancer and get cured, you know. I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, they didn't die because of the cancer, but they will die sooner or later anyway. All of us will. It took me a long time to sort of work that issue out, and I'm still in process. So it's not like we're not going to die, but what kind of quality can we have? Will it affect our practice? Can we reach our final goal of heaven or enlightenment or nirvana? And if we can't work on ourselves, then maybe it's best to let us die so we can live again. Now, that's an interesting concept, and that's one that we can't decide for the person. You know, when I go in, my job is to work with the patient on practice and encourage them to practice and continue practicing so they won't be a victim of their circumstances. But if they want to commit suicide, I have to say, no, you can't. There's only, according to some papers I've read in Buddhism, there's only one way we're allowed to commit suicide, and that's by refusing to eat and drink, to sort of die naturally, I suppose. But we can't take our own life, because that's killing, that's breaking the first precept, and we'll end up in hell for a while. None of our hells or heavens are forever. So I don't want you to think we go there forever. But we go there for a long time. Long within 49 days? Long within 49 days, yeah. Hundreds of thousands of human lifetimes we'll spend in heaven and hell. Uh, in heaven, that's good. In hell, that's bad. And then we're here just a few years in the human realm, and we have an awful lot of work to do. So I don't know if that answered your question, but sometimes it's best not to plug them in, given permission by the family and the patient. And... Um, and I'll leave it at that. Yes. So now we're going to go back to vegetables. So some Buddhists eat vegetables and some Buddhists don't, but nobody has ever been enlightened by what they've eaten. So uh, I, on occasion, have a chili cheeseburger, and I really enjoy it. But I can't kill the cow, and I can't even hear the cow being killed, or I can't eat it. So we have some restrictions. If I go to somebody's house and they say, Oh, we've taken this wonderful chicken we've had for 10 years and we've killed it for you and we're going to make an offering to you. I say to them, I'm sorry, I can't eat it because you killed it for me. In my neighborhood, which is Koreatown in downtown Los Angeles, we have a little store front and they kill live animals. They have fish and chickens that they kill. And a lot of the people are immigrants in my neighborhood and they like fresh meat. And every time I walk by this little storefront, I say a prayer because the energy coming from this place just death and destruction all day, every day. So I can't go in there and buy food because it's being killed specifically for the customer. So we have some restrictions. And when I'm in a Vietnamese Buddhist temple, which is vegetarian, I just am vegetarian. And if I'm at a Thai temple, I have some chicken and fish. And I try not to get too caught up in that. That's not what Buddhism's about. Sexual misconduct. This is a big one in Los Angeles. And maybe in Boston as well. And, and one of the things that the Buddha said about sex might surprise you, but it might not. In everything he said about sex, he implied that the activity of sex would never satisfy the desire for sex. That you can have sex a thousand times, and it's not enough. You can be 80, and your wife gives you Viagra. It's just no rest. The problem with sex is not sexual activity. The problem with sex in Buddhism is the desire for sex because it can't be satisfied. So you might think, well, maybe I just won't have sex. 
Well, now that's a desire not to have sex, and that creates suffering as well. I can tell you from personal experience. <laughs> so there is no easy way out of this. What our job is as Buddhists, monastics, is to end all desire, which is what the Buddha did in his nirvana. And he became celibate after that. Now, I had the great opportunity of going to the very first Monks in the West Conference. These were Catholic monks and Buddhist monks who gathered at the sagely city of 10,000 Buddhas for a couple days talking about inner life and training. And there were some monks there who had been ordained only for a few years, but there were some monks there who had been ordained for 40 and 50 years. So it was so cool to come together and talk to these guys. And it's on my website if you want pictures and some of the stuff we talked about. But one of the things we talked about almost immediately was sex. And, of course, in our case, it was how not to have it. You know? And it was just, but guys, exactly. What do guys do, right? And so... Yeah. 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 That's how men are, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody was celibate until the 12th century in Buddhism. And then in the 12th century in Japan, in particular, the lay people felt sorry for the monks. They felt they should have wives and families because that's having a full life. That's having a good life. You know, living alone, being celibate, that's no way to live. So the culture changed Buddhism in a very special way. Now, during World War II, when Japan occupied Korea, some of the monks took wives as well. So in Korea, you have a really interesting situation. Some of the monks have wives and some don't. Now, the ones that don't think they have it better off, and the ones that do think they have it better off. It's sort of like that. Yeah. So here we are as a bunch of guys who have chosen not to have sex. Chosen not to be in intimate relationships. And how do we love? You know, this was really a, a dilemma for me. Because I thought back in my whole life to all the men I've ever talked to about love. And not one man in my life ever told me how to love. They told me how to lust. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I've had women in my life tell me how to love, but women, I think, love differently than men do because of birth and nurturing. And so I was stimulated. I'm going to figure this out. And until I went to this conference, I didn't think the Buddha loved everybody. Because the Buddha, for me, is stoic. He's a man that sat under a tree, didn't lie down at night to go to sleep, ate one meal a day, figured it out. Tough guy, you know? How is he going to love people? What's, he's not going to be, you know. Um, I, anyway, so I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. So after the conference, I went back to the center. I'm taking a hot shower. I have some of my best insights in a hot shower. And it came to me, this is how men love. I'm going to talk about monastic men now. Men love by accepting the person being loved unconditionally. And it never dawned on me. I have seen these big, burly guys pick up a little baby and just everything is fine. The baby throws up on him. They don't get mad. They, oh, no, no, no. And, and there's just this wonderful sense of acceptance. And when men love their wife or their women, I see them just, you know, sure, yeah. And what do you want? 
Ice cream? Yeah. What kind do you want? What wonderful acceptance. And, I, and there have been a few occasions in my life where somebody in my life has accepted me exactly the way I am. And that's profound. That's a profound relationship. To not have to be any other way than what you are. But I had one more part to the puzzle. Well, how does a man who loves that way express his love? How does he express intimacy then? If you've given up lust, and I'm going to talk about, I think of sexual activity as being lustful now, because of my current occupation. And the second part of the puzzle fell into place. A man who loves is always kind. Always kind. And I was at a high school talking about this, and one of the guys said, well, if you're trying to love everybody, and somebody comes up to you on the street and wants a dollar, and you want to love him, does it mean you have to give him a dollar? And I said, well, no, but when you say no, be kind. So we don't lose our boundaries. We're just kind now when we say no. And in Buddhism, we have something called loving kindness. It's a meditation. So the Buddha, in a very real way, was already telling me how to love and how to express my intimacy. And now I look at these guys who have been ordained for 50 years, living in single-gender communities. And they had a profound acceptance of the idiosyncrasies of the people they lived with. And they were kind. So I have to come to the conclusion that they loved the people they lived with and expressed their intimacy through kindness. Wow. Well, now, if you don't want to be a monastic, what the Buddha said is, don't have sex with people who are married. Don't have sex with people who are engaged. Don't have sex with people who are being supported by their parents, children. And don't have sex with people against the will. And that's all he said. But every city, every state, every country said a lot of other things. I think sexual activity is one of the most legislated activities we have. So if we want to live in community and we want to live in harmony, we need to find out how the community is living and expressing their sexuality. Yeah, that's the only place we can do anything about it, too, isn't it? Is in the present. And we get well or die in the present. And the choices we make in that present moment experience are the choices that are most important. So it is a radical shift from what we're used to, it seems to me, in our culture, because we're so story-oriented. You know, everything's a story. And, and, uh, but our life doesn't seem to be a story outside of our ego. Our life seems to be nothing more than the present moment experience uh, through our sense doors. Uh, a meditation teacher once said, lose your mind and come to your senses. That's the only way to enter the present moment. Yes? Um, I Yeah, good question. Uh, being a monk, how do I stop my desire for enlightenment and nirvana? The craving. The cra- well, desire, craving, thirst. Lust. The lust for it, yes. <laughs> well, uh, I resign myself to the fact that I'm probably not going to be enlightened in this lifetime. I, I'm too distracted by all the things that I do. When I first started to meditate, I would sit down quietly and persevere. I would deal with the pain and the discomfort. I had no pleasure or bliss for two years. And, and I kept going because I wanted to be a good meditator. I had that goal in mind. And then after I became sort of a good meditator, I had less pain and more pleasure. Then I wanted to be enlightened. 
So my meditation had changed now from just being able to meditate to being enlightened through my meditation practice. And I worked really hard, and I found out about all these techniques, and I would do this breathing technique, and I'd get so far out with my breathing technique. Oh, it was so cool. And I'd see altered states of reality in my own consciousness that were always there, but I never had access to. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's not too much longer. It's right around the corner, you know? And that was like 20 years ago. It's a very long corner. And, and today, I simply sit. I have no techniques. I just sit and I become transparent and let all the stuff arise and pass away. And then I get up and go out and have a cup of coffee, you know, and do my day. And then at night, I sit and let all the stuff arise and pass away, and I go to sleep. And so I've come to understand that it's the journey that's the most important part of this. It's not the goal. It's not enlightenment. So I was able to let go of my attachment to that. And it won't happen if you're attached to it. If you want it to happen again or for the first time, it's not going to work because it's beyond the controls we have with our ego or our sense of self. Was that useful? Okay. Did you have a question? Well, I was just thinking, uh, he mentioned C.S. Lewis, and before that I was thinking of a parallel with Christianity where really you're to die to self. And Lewis points that out pretty powerfully, that you know what, what God in Christianity wants from us is everything. Give it all up. Yeah. Um, not later after you've had the car and taken the trip to Europe. But, but right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we do it in a slightly different way. We don't fill ourselves with God. We empty ourselves of self. But we don't kill ourselves. We don't kill the self. We, we realize we are not the self. And that took me a long time to really see the, the subtle difference between not being self and having no self. If we didn't have a self, we'd end up like Ronald Reagan. And I say that because he had Alzheimer's at the end of his life. And when the personality goes, we're dysfunctional. We can't live. You know, so self is self is our our vehicle. Self is what allows us to go out the door, you know, work a computer, drive a car. I mean, it's really a cool thing. It'd be of service as well. There's a lot of good points and bad points. The problem with self is it's not a good master because it's diluted. It creates its own world. It writes its own story. And so. It seems to me what in Buddhism we're trying to do is, is simply say, okay, the self is there. It's a process. But I don't have to be that process all the time. I can take some time out and observe how self arises, exists, and then dies in every moment. I can see self create my world for me by writing down the story of my life, including characters, antagonists, and protagonists, and and me the victim or me the victor. And, and then I can see it changing the plot when it's not quite happy with how it's turning out. Mm-hmm. And, and nothing to do pretty much with the outside. It's all the inside. So if we can turn our master into a tool, then we have a choice. We have an option. And, and the more I think about Buddhism, it's really about being free. I told the Buddhist students at UCLA just the other night, I said, if you want to be free, meditate and never get a charge card. Oh. Okay. Yeah. It's good advice both ways, I think. So, so we like being in prison. We like being told what to do. 
We like somebody to lock the door behind us because it takes away some of our choices, less anxiety, less fear. Somebody says, I want to let you out. You can do what you want to do. Well, I don't know what I want to do. I've never done what I've wanted to do because I didn't know what I was supposed to do as a human being. The choice for most people in America is the choice of consumer. Do I want the red one or the blue one? You know, and so we're sort of there, and that's not free, as far as I can tell. So Buddhism is about being ultimately free, free from pleasure. Now, that might not sound like a good freedom, but pleasure can really make us want to experience it again and again and again. And pain can make us want to avoid it again and again. And both that aversion and attraction uh, allows us to not be as functional or as peaceful as we could be. Yes? I'm just wondering, can um, one free themselves from the consequences of wrong action? Um, Never. In a future life? How Never. <laughs> we can't ever. That's uh, The question was, can we ever free ourselves from the consequences of wrong action? And the answer is no. We can't. But no, but we can change the consequences. We can't free ourselves from it. And the reason I say that with such glee and happiness is because it's such an important point in Buddhism that the Buddha ended his karma in his nirvana, but he couldn't end the consequences of his karma. And his his cousin Devadatta, story of the Buddha, wanted to kill the Buddha and be a Buddha himself. And he got this big boulder and he pushed the boulder down the cliff and it rolled down and broke into a lot of pieces. And one of the splinters cut the foot of the Buddha. And it's said in that story that the reason his foot was cut, that was a consequence, consequence from a past unskillful deed. So he could end his karma in nirvana, but he couldn't end the consequences of his karma in nirvana. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I know that's not where you wanted to go, but I'm glad you brought it up. Oh, okay. Yes. Great question. Thank you. So we're talking about rebirth now. We may not finish our meditation, but let's go into rebirth because this is important. In the Kalama Sutta, which is what you referred to, the Buddha said, don't believe it just because I said it. Don't believe it because it's tradition. Don't believe it because it's in the books. Believe it because you prove it to be true in your own experience. Rebirth has a function in Buddhism because it validates karma. Number one, you can't have karma without rebirth. Because there are a lot of good people in this world who have miserable lives. And we would then say, because of a past birth and past indiscretions, it's taken root in this lifetime and the consequences are showing. And there are a lot of really terrible people, unskillful people, who have great lives. And you say, well, where is the justice in that? So rebirth validates karma. The people I've talked to who are dying want to go someplace. They really do. They don't want to simply... I've talked to some people who are healthy who have said to me, there's nothing after life. I'm going to feed the trees. But I've never talked to anybody who's terminal who said that. You know? And in Buddhism, we have many kinds of destinations. We have 32 heavens and 32 hells. And we have descriptions. We know how high the heavens are and how low the hells are. And we know how long we need to stay in each one. 
and we need to know how, and we need we know how to be reborn in each one through our specific practices. And somebody might say, "Well, how do you know that to be true?" And I would say, "I don't. I know that to be Buddhism." Now, as I practice Buddhism, it self-validates for me. All the things I've tested so far have been validated. So I would say, I don't have faith in rebirth. I have confidence that rebirth exists because of my previous testing. Now, I've never really... I can't think of a time I've ever felt I've done this before. This seems like the very first time. I have talked to people who seem to be able to remember, but they don't seem to be very valid to me. They're always really cool people in the past lives, you know. And, I, and, and, and then you've got these people that channel other people who are dead. And, and Ram Dass talked about that one time and said he's never, never really met anybody who's dead who had much to say. You know, because we're living and we have different issues to deal with, so we... But as I work with people, and, and because most people don't want nirvana or enlightenment that I've talked to, because it's that sort of like, well, it's nothing, and I want to have something, they want to go to heaven. They want to know how to go to heaven. They want me to tell them what they need to do to go to heaven. So in the hospital, if someone is terminal, and a, f- a friend of mine who came to the meditation center had been coming for a couple of years, his name was George, ended up having cancer. And the Veterans Administration in Los Angeles called me up and said, George is here, and he told us to call you. And he wants you to come down and talk to him. So I went down to the VA, which in itself is quite an experience, and talked to George. And George was a mess. He had some kind of skin thing happening, and there was blood, and wow. And I'm saying, George, what happened, you know? And we started to talk, and he wanted to die. He, he knew he was going to die, but he wanted to die like a Buddhist. And he wanted me to help him die like a Buddhist. So the first thing I did was to tell him, well, you can't watch TV, because that's a time waster. So I, I brought a little CD of a Buddhist chanting, and we found a player at the hospital that they allowed him to use to listen to the Buddhist chants. And then I made a, a little altar for him, a picture of Kuan Yin, Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And I would talk to him about the sutras, and I would talk to him about meditation. And we had talked before, over the two-year period he'd been coming to the meditation center, about different aspects of his meditation and different experiences he'd had. So I encouraged him to remember those and work on going towards those experiences, one of them being an inner light. He had found his inner light, we have that in Buddhism as well. We might interpret it differently, though. And I said, that's where you want to go. What you need to do is generate that inner light through your practice and stay with it. That's the doorway. And it wasn't too much longer uh, that he had to live, and then he died. And, and he died relatively peacefully. The, the, the nurses were, were happy that he didn't struggle too much. He was really letting go of this world so he could have a better life in the next world. And, and I wouldn't ever, I'm not saying that you would do this, but I, I would never go in and talk to him and say, you know, philosophically speaking, George, there may be no place for you to go. You know, <laughs> pardon? Yes, well, exactly. There are plenty of places to go. So, so that's how I approach it. I approach it. And for me, heaven is real.
And, and uh, to give you another personal experience, because I'm a police chaplain, I went to the uh, Orange County Coroner's Office and got to see dead people. Now, I was fascinated by that, because we have you know, cemetery meditations in Buddhism that they used to practice in the old days before they buried them. The monks would go out and look at bodies decompose. That'll take away your lust right away. You know? And... Uh, and so I got to go in and see these dead people for the first time. And I was the only chaplain that was excited about it. Though the Baptist chaplain brought coffee and donuts for afterwards. <laughs> Part of his tradition, you know. And, and when I looked at these dead people, we had, uh, 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 I'm, I'm going to be a bit glib about this because it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to talk about sometimes. We had a boy in there who was 15 who had committed suicide the day before. We had a woman of 34 who had gone to a party and had a drug alcohol overdose. A man, 41 years old, was found next to his easy, or in his easy chair next to a bottle of open vodka. His liver was bigger than his head. And there were the three old guys who died because they were old. And they were in different stages of being autopsied. And I got to look in there and it's beautiful colors. I was so surprised at the colors inside the body. Vivid. And, uh, and, and they all sort of looked like movie props to me. Something about the life energy, once it escapes... That vehicle is left behind, no longer human, though well-respected, in the coroner's office. And they like to put something over the eyes. They oftentimes drape something like a, a, a cloth or something over the eyes. And I said, why do you keep covering the eyes? And the coroner said, well, that's the doorway to the soul. We don't want to see the soul. In that environment, we would be giving, giving an orientation on what they do and how they do it afterwards. And literally, I had the sensation of somebody touching me, and there was no one even close to me. And all the movies I had seen, like The Sixth Sense, you know, they became real to me. And I realized there was this energy here in this building because of all the dead people. And I asked the coroner, I said, do you ever feel the energy here? You know, and he, and he was a bureaucrat working for the, for the city. I'm thinking, well, I'm, uh, sort of a strange question to ask, but I'm a Buddhist. I could ask that. And he said, oh, yes. He said, I am a born-again Christian, and this has renewed my faith. And the energy here is always in a constant state of transformation. Sometimes it's really good and fun and light. Other times it's really dark. And we don't even know why. We can't put a finger on any of the reasons why that happens. You know, and, and for me, after being at the coroner's office, I realized this is like the last great secret that's being kept from the population. They don't really want us to know there's something after news, weather, and sports. And, and most of us spend a whole lot of time on how we look. This vehicle, we know we get really cool haircuts, and we've got some nice clothes, good walking shoes, you know, shave every day. But what do we do with the stuff that's going to live after this goes? And when I was at a high school in Paulus Verdes, I asked the class, has anybody ever gone to their priest or rabbi or imam or monk or pastor or minister and said, how do I die? And not one of them had. And most of the time, clergy is telling people how to live. How to live. But after seeing those people in the coroner's office, I realized my own mortality with even greater clarity that at any moment, and maybe on a motorcycle in Los Angeles, I'm more likely than not to have at any moment occur, it could happen. And what have I done today to prepare for it?
How will I accept my death? Will I go gracefully? Will I cling and hold because I've got one more page of my website to do before I go? What do I need to do now? When I talk to my mother, which is almost every week, and she's 76 now, and um, I say, hi, how are you? How's the weather? We talk about two minutes, and then we hang up. And I'm thinking, what a joy it is to hear her voice, because one day she'll be gone, and I'll never hear her voice again. So we have nothing to say to each other other than, oh, the weather's cold, two inches of snow, and I'll talk to you later. And every time I come in contact with friends and family now, I realize this might be the last time I'll ever see them. And I don't want to leave them angry and at, at me because of something I've done. And that going to the coroner's office and dealing with the idea of death and dealing with the idea of heavens and actually helping a few people die has really changed the way I live my life. And it's given me so much more urgency. you know. And that's why I can say uh, that most of the time, time is more valuable than money because it's such in, in short commodity right now for me. You know, uh, Richard Pryor died yesterday, one of my favorite comedians. He, he did, yeah. I was watching the news last night. 65. Okay, I'm 56, nine years. Well, nine years isn't very long, is it? What do I need to do? And how do I prepare for my next lifetime? And if you're a Christian, Jew, Muslim, Hindu, American Indian, how do you prepare for eternity? Wow. But if this is the last, how was your lunch today? I don't even want to think about whether it's the last lunch. It is. It is okay. when I had lunch today, it could have been my last lunch. And did I really spend time eating it and chewing it and enjoying it and smelling it? Because even prisoners on death row get to have a last meal. When I'm talking to my mom or a friend or someone, am I, am I really there with them? Do I have presence with them? It was the last lunch I had today. Yeah. Exactly. And it's always like that. One of my favorite commercials, cornflakes, taste it again for the first time. It's always the first time. And it took going to the coroner's office to wake me up to that, really. And, and not in a morbid way. I have a good sense of humor. I laugh. It's fun. But not in a morbid way. But I, 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 I can appreciate the, the magic of life now. Such a, it's, it's such a miracle, isn't it, that we're here and able to have lunch. Wow. And it sometimes tastes pretty good. Yes? I have a hard time with the concept of karma as you're explaining it. You see someone having a rough time and it's, you know, well, something that they did oh, previously. Like good. blaming the victim kind of Yeah. Good. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I didn't finish the concept of karma yet. I have a friend in Los Angeles. She's a Vietnamese lawyer, a very small woman. And when I was at Juvenile Hall, she wanted to go with me, but she was definitely afraid. She said, they're going to kill me. They're all big and strong, and I just would feel so uncomfortable at Juvenile Hall. I don't want to go, but I want to be of service. So maybe sometime in the future, I can figure it out. Well, it wasn't but two weeks that went by, and she called me up and said, I'm going with you this week. 
and I'm bringing mangoes, and I'm going to teach everybody how to do eating meditation, speaking of lunch. And so she did. She showed up. We went together. She had her mangoes. We all had a great time sitting on the floor in a circle, eating mangoes mindfully. took us forever, but (laughs) mindfully. And then I had to ask her, well, what changed your mind? Why did you want to go this week? She said, something happened. Somebody broke into my law office and stole a couple of computers and rifled through the drawers for money. And I realized something was wrong with my karma. And I needed to do something about it. I needed to start changing the consequences of my past karma by doing something now in this present moment. Imagine a glass of water and a teaspoon of salt and you stir the salt in the water and you sip from the glass and all you can taste is the salt. But if you take that same teaspoon of salt and put it in a forest pond, there's so much water in there, you can't taste the salt. And when times start to get tough, it's not about why me, I must have bad karma. It's about what do I need to do now to lessen the consequences of my past karma? How can I be of service? How can I gain merit? How can I be useful? It's a very proactive response to the bumps in the road of life, I think. So it's not predestination. Even if you mess up today and you're fearing the consequences, you have the opportunity of changing the consequences by the karma you do right now in this very present moment. It might be just absolutely the way it's supposed to be. It could be. But let me end with something, because I've got to go to the airport, and I don't want to miss my plane. So I'll be suffering all night in the airport if I miss my plane. They're talking about being one. And this is a really important concept that I have problems with. And I have to blame monotheism to a certain extent because of one. And some people think one is the best number. It's the ultimate number. Well, in the 60s, of course, one was the loneliest number. (laughs) One oftentimes leads to uniformity. And if we have one God, one nation under God, we aren't including everyone. And it seems to me in 2005, we are starting to deconstruct the one, to find the essence of the one. Where does the one live? What kind of quality does the one have? And one of my favorite books from the 70s was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And in this book, the author had a Honda Superhawk 400, and his buddy had a BMW. And his buddy always thought the BMW had more quality because of the German engineering. I imagined them going to a giant Walmart parking lot, taking apart their motorcycles into 10,000 pieces, giving them each a magnifying glass and telling them to go find the quality of the motorcycle. Where does it live? In what part does it exist? And they would look at each part and come up empty. No, the quality's not here. The quality's not here. And somehow, when the 10,000 pieces come together and create one, quality, essence, soul arises. Now, in Buddhism, perhaps because it has a polytheist history, we never have anything that occurs because of one. We always have many that are interconnected and interdependent. And I, for one, uh, think we should take uh, under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance, you know. But that's just me, because it doesn't include some of the Hindus, it doesn't include some of the secular humanists or the atheists. And I want America to include everybody. 
But America can't include everybody if it's one thing. So, my understanding is the ultimate reality in Buddhism is the interconnection and interdependence of all things. We don't really need to become one because we're already connected. And if we have unity and diversity, it allows us to be who we need to be as an individual, but it also gives us the ultimate reality of being connected to everyone and everything. And if there's one person dying or sick or homeless or hungry, they're literally is a part of each and every one of us that is sick and dying and homeless and hungry. And that, I think, leads to the bodhisattva ideal of being of service to the community. Not because the community is one, but because we are directly linked to everyone in that community. And that's the unity. So when I look at Buddhism and I see people, and I've heard this, the tsunami was caused by karma. They're taking one aspect of Buddhism and making it the sole cause of a giant disaster. And Buddhism has never worked like that. It's always been many things coming together, many conditions, to create the consequences in this world. So that's why I think, as a Buddhist, I, can, I have fun with the Catholics and the Hindus and the Jews and the Protestants and everybody I come in contact with because I know I'm already connected to them. I don't need to be like them. I'm with them all the time. And if they are different than I am, that's okay because that creates community. But no matter how different they get, I'm still connected with them whether I want to be or not. <laughs> yes, sir? What did the Buddha say to the hot dog vendor? Give me one with everything. Make me one with everything. <laughs> yes. I think a Christian wrote that out. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's it. I hope you found it interesting. I hope you found it useful. Uh, please check out my website, urbandharma.org. For more about me, check out kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. So until the next podcast, until the next time, uh, be well, be happy, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>